can't pay the IRS, haven't filed in a while, receiving threatening letters? Yeah, it's about to get worse. The IRS is hiring an army of agents targeting hardworking Americans like you. You need warriors on your side. You need Tax Network USA. Tax Network USA has brilliant strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. For instance, they've discovered a limited-time special offer that the IRS is willing to waive $1 billion in penalties. Find out if you qualify before it's too late. Never call the IRS alone. Let Tax Network USA attorneys handle it. They have preferred direct lines to the IRS. They know which agents to work with and which to avoid. They've resolved over $1 billion in tax debts and offer a best-in-class guarantee. Schedule your free consultation now. Call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit TNUSA.com slash Victor. TNUSA.com slash Victor. Ladies, hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler, the host and the star and the namesake is Victor Davis Hanson. And he is the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. This is a special. This is one of the first of four that we are recording based on questions submitted from our, our listeners. And we have three questions. Before you start, Jack. I yeah. got a email last week yes. from one of our listeners, and he had heard me on the YouTube and something said, Victor, when you were introduced, I noticed two things that are yes. quite frequent. People use your middle name as David. And you and, and Sammy don't do this, so I'm telling you. I did it once in front of... Did you? Sarah Palin, but go okay. ahead. And then the other thing is they always say institute for institution. And institution, I think, means it's got a kind of poly interest. It, it, it goes across disciplines where an institute just studies one particular discipline. But nevertheless, this guy said, I'm so tired of seeing you introduce as Victor David Hansen and from the Hoover Institute and the fact that you never correct people. Which mm. brings up the questions in my I'm going to reply to this question because that's what we're thematically focused on today. I never correct people. I feel that it's rude. I, I've had people. The only time I've corrected somebody, I got introduced I, at a university that hated my guts. And they said, this is Professor Hansen from Fresno State College. It's actually Cal State University, Fresno, that gives me a little bit of shred of dignity. And he is a colleague of Jerry Tarkanian, who had a, a nadir there because of NCA cheating, the basketball coach. And the, he's the, a, the, the and, towel, the towel yeah, chewer, yeah, the yeah. towel chewer. He, oh. And uh, he is a raisin farmer. And here he is. That was my introduction. Raisin farmer, Fresno State College and colleague of Jerry Tarkanian. Mm. <laughs> And I well, never, I, I actually I said I actually have done somewhat more than that, but I'm very honored that I'm a raisin farmer because they're a great bunch of people. Yeah. 
Um, and your product always found its way into my little lunch bag in, uh, at St. Barnabas School. Oh, good. <laughs> maybe, maybe you can give me some money after Sunday <laughs> went broke in 1983 and confiscated $88,000 of our capital retained from our family. Well, we have, I don't want to correct you, but <laughs> we've heard that story. I apologize if I called the Hoover Institute. I thought it'd do institution, but I never. No, ever, no, it is the institution. It's Hoover Institution. Yeah, yeah, but I never. Uh, you, no, you've always David got. You, yeah. You've always got both right. Okay, good. And I do try to occasionally let our listeners know that through my Bronx accent, it's Hans Son, not Hans Sen. We need yes. the switch. The switch. And I always say, I always say the same thing. It's tired as another person told me that's a stale joke professor hansen i don't want to hear any more that a swede is a dane with his brains blown out <laughs> so, right. okay well i'm trying to get new material i'm not going to be it's... a creature of habit i'm not in a rut <laughs> uh... I, try, I, I do prepare for these things and i read two or three hours on the news every morning and every morning yeah well, every maybe that's morning a, we will we will on a, one of these episodes where someone asks it's not this one, but when someone asks you about your, how you write, your your habits mm -hmm. of writing, we can at the same time uh, repeat the, your habits of gleaning. Yeah, I, we've done that on once before. Basis. I'm a big yeah, fan but, of Powerline. Yeah. I, I really like those guys. But th there are many new listeners uh, uh, that have come in since then, so we, we maybe should regale them. But, yeah. but Victor, we have to, um, you know, we have to do at the beginning of the of, of the podcast yeah. we have to we have to let listeners know we're going to get to their questions right after these important messages okay it's time to commit 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself begin your new smile journey with bite and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at bite.com Bite Clear Liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Bite. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Okay, we're back with the special edition of the Victor Davis Hanson show. I do want to uh, let our new listeners know that there, Victor has a website, official website, The Blade of Perseus, victorhanson.com. Not Victor David Hanson, not Victor Davis Hanson, victorhanson.com. We'll talk about that in a little bit. So, Victor, um, knowing uh, ahead of time that you were going to be uh, away for a part of June and July. You're going to be with uh, Hillsdale on the sa Sailing the Merry Seas. We uh, put out through this podcast and through um, a great Facebook group, the uh, Victor Davis Hanson Fan Club, requests for questions. We got many of them. So 
Here are some. We'll do three questions on each show. Here's the first one for this particular program. And it's from Dave in San Juan, Puerto Rico. And he writes, my dad and both grandfathers were career naval officers and all three graduated from the United States Naval Academy in Annapolis as a Navy brat. I was born in Annapolis and lived a large part of my childhood there. By the time I was ready for college, the allure, having lived near and observed the midshipmen for attending the U.S. Naval Academy and my grades and desire to drink beer, smoke pot, and chase coeds resulted in attending the University of Maryland, but ultimately attending the United States Marine Corps officer uh, school and serving eight years in the service my dad jokingly referred to as useless sons made comfortable. So given my history, quote unquote history, regarding the U.S. Naval Academy and having heard your laments about Stanford and understanding you were a professor at the academy, I would like to hear your thoughts of your experiences there as a professor. Dave from San Juan. Well, <laughs> it was a very unique experience because I arrived there on uh, July 1st of 2002, right in the transition from 9-11 to what would become the Iraq War. And I left on July 30th of 2003, right during the so-called insurgency. I drove across the U.S. I had a 1995 Mazda. I, I didn't realize I had to be there on, in the summer to repeat, report, quote unquote, for duty. And the car blew up in Dayton, Ohio. And I had to wait two days while they tried to find a alternator. And then it had warped the head. And I limped in at about 40 miles an hour after three more days of driving. But it was a wonderful place. I really liked the students. And the students, uh, Alex Martin was a student of mine. I had a, just a, a whole number of wonderful students and they were really brilliant kids and a lot of them uh, served nobly in uh, the Iraq and Afghanistan war. Now, the thing to remember about the Naval Academy is it is not like the Air Force Academy or West Point. And by that, I mean the majority of most of the departments are tenured civilians. In other words, the Naval Academy has chosen to follow the regular university pattern, non-military. If you go to West Point or if you go to Colorado Springs at the Air Force Academy, the majority of faculty are lieutenant colonels, colonels, some majors, but they're in the military and they're there in revolving billets. Some have permanent billets, but they have a unique system. And it was to make the Navy, I guess, more a part of the general culture. And I don't think it worked. And so when I was in the Department of History, I, well, there wasn't a classics department there. But I would say 75% of the faculty were civilians. Many of them had prior military experience, but they were civilians. And that meant they went through the tenure process. And they were there not because they were teaching military history courses, but it was a civilian. It was a civilian history department. So there was a re renaissance. There was this. There were that. And as faculty members, it was a very desirable billet because you were right next to Washington, D.C., um, the, the Naval Academy in many ways, it's 
right on the ocean. And it's beautiful. I thought the weather in the summer was, is not very nice. It's humid. But nonetheless, people gravitate from the left. That, that If you're left wing and you get hired at the Naval Academy, that's a, a very envious position. And so my point was, when I got to the Naval Academy, I had been writing about the war. And I think I was the visiting Schifrin professor of military history. The bid had been made to me, I think, in 1999. But by 2001, I had been associated with the Bush administration, not that I knew them, but just supporting some policies after the contentious 2000 election. So almost immediately, I was a conservative in a very liberal department. Some of you are going to say, that's impossible. No, it's not impossible. That department was very liberal. Would that have been the same for all departments by your? No, uh, no. It would be political science, English, history, philosophy, but not engineering, mathematics, things like that. I met that those groups of faculty members. They were very conservative. And there were, uh, as I said, somewhere between 25 and 30 percent uh, military officers. And most of not all, most of them were uh, cons- conservative. I mean, uh, conservative. But when the war heated up, there was the faculty lounge and they had CNN on one camera uh, television and Fox on the other. And I can remember that most of the faculty were only watching the the, the uh, CNN. And it made it a little bit difficult because uh, Britt Hume had asked me to drive into Washington, I think, for four weekends and to uh, be a commentator on the ongoing war. And I did. And uh, so that was more polarizing to some people. And then uh, I wasn't, I guess I wasn't shy about confronting people. I'll give you one example. One of the first talks I gave was a military officer who was a professor there. And remember that if the military officers enjoy being professors there and they want to extend their rotating billet, they have to have the approval of civilians that run the department who grant tenure. I know that there's a dean that is a military officer, but generally these are self-governing civilian-like systems. So that means that a lot of the younger military officers who were teaching there ingratiate themselves in the worst case or in the second are indifferent to radical politics. And this officer was giving a talk, I won't mention his name, that the campaign to take Iwo Jima in early 1945 was a waste of time. Uh, the, the enormous 25,000 plus dead that were incurred on the Japanese were sort of a white rage phenomenon of Marines that just wanted to kill people. We lost 7,000, I think, dead. And that it had no utility, according to his research. That struck me uh, as wrong, but also uh, as abhorrent. My own father, who had flown 40 missions on a B-29 out of Tinian, had landed on three occasions, I think, with either bullet damage or a wounded person or mechanical difficulties. And they had, Jack, it was a eight to nine hour flight one way from Tokyo to the Marianas. And that was at night and there was no sophisticated navigation. So a lot of B-29s had not calibrated 
me eight or nine hours to get over there. And right. you know, they only went about 250 miles, 1,600 miles each way. It's kind of like from San Francisco flying at night without a computer or navigation to Salt Lake City or beyond and or Denver. And then they had to fly back. And if they didn't calibrate the fuel consumption, they were dead because there was out, nothing out there. And there were Japanese planes that would intercept them on the way back. But once they took Iwo Jima, thanks to the heroism and sacrifice of the Marine Corps, then there was uh, people have done the formulations. And there's a lot of controversy whether they're counting one plane two or three times. But the number of people who made emergency landings there versus the number of people who were killed, it wasn't even close. There was a lot more B-29 crews that were able to land there. This person was arguing, well, they were tired or it was just a, they would have made it anyway. Or one, you can't count a B-29 that did there twice. But his whole idea was uh, that the Pacific War was a white rage, uh, anti-Asian racist and uh, excuse me, this was a military officer, yes, a military this... officer. And he this was to the people were supportive of it. And I was getting angry and frustrated. And then a, a wondrous thing happened. There was a professor there whom I became best friends with, Miles Yu. And he had been a dissident in China at Tiananmen Square and fled for his life after bravely protesting the Chinese Communist government. He got his family out and he went, I think he went to Swarthmore and he got a PhD from Berkeley and he was a professor of history at the Naval Academy. And he was a scarred veteran of suffering under communism. And he was actually writing essays and what then was the equivalent of a podcast trying to warn people about Chinese espionage, etc. So the point was he read some Japanese and of course he was fluent in Chinese. And he interrupted in the question when this guy when I was attacking my question and said, you don't know what you're talking about. Japanese killed 16,000, 16 million Chinese. They ran a racial war of all the armies, militaries in World War II. They had the highest kill ratio versus losses suffered, despite Nagasaki, Hiroshima, civilian, military, put them all together. And they killed more people and lost fewer in that calculus than Germany. So they were a lethal killing machine. And then he went on to explain what sources in the Japanese thought about Iwo Jima. And of course, the Japanese felt that they had to hold the island because they felt that they were inflicting losses, mechanical losses, especially on B-29s, by denying them not, not only the base for sanctuary and repair, but they had Japanese zeros and more sophisticated Raiden flyers based there that could intercept uh the B-29s who were, they were not able to be escorted all the way to Tokyo, even by, you know, P-51s, et cetera. So he just demolished that guy. And that was a really good experience for me because Miles and I, he, uh, his, his name was, he was born as Mao Chong, as everybody mm -hmm. was, everybody was during the Cultural Revolution. And I always called him Mao, but <laughs> he's, he was he became very well known. He's now he was the, the Chinese advisor to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. We talked he, about him on a recent yeah. podcast. He, he writes for for Strategica. Yes, he does. And he's a member of our group. And so we kind of bonded the whole year uh, as the two conservatives. 
and there were maybe two or three others. The other thing happened as the war progressed. Uh, I remember when the statue fell, about 88% of the Americans polled support of George W. Bush. Everybody had said, I was for the war. There were 23 regulation, uh, resolutions that were approved by the U.S. Senate and the House, and they, only four of them were WMD. They were things like the Marsh Arabs. We've gone through this before. Suicide bombing on the, you know, Abu Nadal, all of the terrorists that he was harboring, all the violations of the 91 Accords, giving suicide bombers money, genocide of the Kurds and the Marsh Arabs. But that was all forgotten because by the time I left in July, the insurrection had started. And suddenly... Many of the architects of the war, a Richard Pearl or maybe a David Fromman, the narrative was changing a lot among a lot of the neocons. It was sort of now my brilliant planned three-week war was destroyed by your, pointing to the Bush administration, your lousy screwed up peace, and therefore I'm not responsible for the mess that's in Iraq. I thought that was very unfair to the soldiers, some of whom were my students that were on their way to Iraq when I left. It got very contentious because there was also a professor there whom I won't name. And there was a very sweet kid there who had graduated from the note, and I'll get back to her in a minute, but he had graduated. He was beloved by everybody. And he worked for a defense contractor, and he was subject to recall as a member of the Naval Reserve, especially because he had uh, language fluency that was relevant to the Middle East. That's as much as I can tell you about it. And he went over there, and he was communicating with email with members of the faculty, and everybody was following his progression. I think he was in Kuwait, training people about how to interrogate in Arabic particular prisoners and things. So he was a consultant, a very sweet person, very capable, very brave. It was very tragic because he had a wife and two kids. He, during the course, he was called to go into the war theater. This is a long explanation about gifts, the, the request from the writer, right. some idea yeah. of, the, of the of the atmosphere. So he, um, he went back into the, the field of combat and I don't know if it was at Kirk or where it was, Taji, but in the course of his training on site, he requested to go into town to get a better feel. And I'm remembering something that happened 20 years ago. So if some of the listeners know about it, uh, I plead there might be some details I can't remember completely. But he in the process, in a routine traffic stop, somebody in the insurrection shot him and killed him. And it was it was just terrible because he he was out of the military. He had done distinguished service. He was an excellent student. He was the favorite of the um, history department. He volunteered. He didn't. He was he was going to volunteer probably, but he was called up. He went over to Kuwait, which wasn't as dangerous, but it was just a a freak thing that. He was deployed for a week or something like that to train people on site. He requested to get out of the compound. And I think the person with him was killed too. his his guard or his driver who was an American U.S. US military personnel. And I felt terrible 
But what I'm getting at, this professor essentially said that I was responsible uh, because I had supported the war. And then what? there was, yeah, there was an effort to raise money. And I was told that I was not to give any money to this fund because I was culpable. At that point, I got very angry at, at that atmosphere. Also, at this time, I had gotten to know Donald Rumsfeld. I know people think he's controversial, and I know that he could be a prop, but he was, uh, I was also talking to the Andrew Marshall's Office of Net Assessment. He had to have a security clearance. It was just, it wasn't about Iraq. It was on the history of war in general and the histories of insurgencies in Rome and Greece, Middle Ages, etc. So I would lecture on a historical topic and then the members of that group would try to ask me questions about which, of, which tactics or hearts and minds, etc. were effective in the past. Mm-hmm. And so I was going up there and at some point Rumsfeld heard about it and he asked me to come and do the same thing to him one-on-one so maybe on a friday morning after i taught i would go up down to washington meet him and we would talk about history and he was a fascinating character he talked about everything his his years at monsanto and he was he had the rumsfeld foundation he was planning even then i was a board member of for a while he, he had been a fighter pilot hadn't he He had he had he yeah. was very courageous he was like an all he had a wonderful wife yeah and, and he had a really lovely guy brilliant remember victoria Coates? yeah she, she was an art historian and she was working i think she was working cl- closely with him he had uh, the other person, the Fox commentator, as a speechwriter. You know, Mark. You uh, remember his yeah, name? Yeah, Mark. He's on all the time. Smart yeah, smiles all the time. Yeah, Wall Street <laughs> Journal columnist. I'll just my name. Will come, it'll come to yeah, him. Yeah, same hockey yeah. lover. Smiling. Yes. Anyway, he had wonderful people around him, and so I enjoyed that. But at one point, I remember him saying, "I was surprised," and he said, "How do you?" endure that at the Naval Academy. And I thought he'd heard about it. He hadn't heard a thing about me. He was just saying that we've had problems at the Naval Academy because it's ultra liberal and it, it functions as a civilian organization. Yeah. And at that point, um, there were some other questions that came up. And I remember very contentious, the superintendent, uh, the commandant, not the com- the head of the entire Naval Academy had been dismissed because he had been jogging. He went through security. You all had to go to security. And I guess he felt the rules were that every Marine officer had to recognize him by sight as part of their job. One of them didn't and insisted that he produce ID, which he didn't have. And there and he, he he got vindictive. And then the Marine Corps came in. Don't you know the, who I am? Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And the, yeah. yeah. And, the, and the result was that he was it was clear when I left that he was going to leave. It, it was a disastrous tenure on his part. But my point is that it was a, it was a very strange time in defense of the Naval Academy. It was politicized. The war was going bad. The Bush administration had been ultra popular. And by the time I left, it was unpopular. There was an anti-war movement in Washington. I had been doing Fox commentary, which I don't think was very popular at the uh, about the post-war challenges with Brit Hume. And um, it was just it wasn't a fun time in my life. It really was. And I oh, had you retired from Cal State? No, no. I was just on a leave of absence for one year. And so I was not making as much money as I was. And when I had to have my travel expenses all the way over there, 
it, I, I took kind of a financial hit. I had three children and a wife, so they the kids were in school. So I had promised them that I would fly home every two weeks and they would one of them would fly every other weekend. And that cost me about ten thousand dollars. So yeah. my youngest daughter, Susanna, would fly on uh, on one weekend. I'd fly home on the next. And then Pauline, my oldest daughter, would fly the, the other one. Then I'd fly on the next. Then my son, Bill, would fly. Right. And it was I mean, I had to teach Monday, Wednesday. I, I taught every day, but my class wasn't out till 12 or one o'clock till two on Fridays. So I was literally running out to and I didn't know Annapolis very well. I had this old beat up Mazda that had blown the head gasket and they had, I didn't have money to buy a new car. So they put a, you know, once you blow a head gasket on a Mazda, it's done for. But I yeah. insisted that I didn't have the money. So I had them put a new gasket, never ran right. The compression was bad. Had to have it sent home in a truck. I should have just sold oh it. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, I, I'd go to BWI in Baltimore, and then I'd yeah. fly home, and I'd get home maybe at midnight to mm -hmm. Fresno on the last flight from Phoenix. And then I would be here one day, Saturday, and then I'd go back to the airport, and then my kids would come the same way. And it was very hectic. I don't have a positive memory of it. I love the Naval Academy students. I love the military officers. I love the campus. Uh, I go swimming in the pool. I go look at the John Paul Jones. I go to the Naval Club with Miles every luncheon. We had a great conversations. Uh, I went over to his house a lot, met a lot of people he knew, but I was very unpopular, put it that way. I don't think I had and nothing this is, against. This is 2002. So yes, this is uh, 2002 know, before, and three. Before wokeness is uh, yeah, full yeah, bloom. Uh, yeah. God knows how you'd be treated today. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be allowed on the campus. So yeah. my. So when I see the wokeness from the chief of naval operations or the chairman of the Joint Chiefs or the it makes it's just an extension of what I saw there, right. and the students knew it. And when I complained a couple of times to the commandant and the superintendent, they got very defensive and said, this is what we want. We want a left wing adversarial culture so that our our students understand what America is all about. And I said this an academic left wing mind is not what America's about. Right. So it was it was problematic. Not all the faculty were that way. I developed four or five other friends, but I was kind of isolated and I didn't have any money. I had a wrecked car. I was staying in a little apartment. Uh, and, you know, I, yeah. I wasn't used to living in snow in the winter and humidity. And then I was away from my family. And I had, you know, at that time, my house, I hadn't started doing anything on. It was 130 years old, falling apart. So when I got home on Saturdays, I was always on the roof or under the foundation fixing stuff or stopped yeah. up drain. And then I'd fly back and I was right. I had just written Carnage and Culture. And it came out a week before 9-11. And it was to be kind. It was a good book, but it wasn't going anywhere. But suddenly I did a book TV and the topic wasn't the book. It was on 9-11. And I connected it to the Western military tradition. And I tried to tell everybody in that tense time in which we didn't have a lot of confidence. I said, don't worry, this will not stand. The United States will react and we'll, we'll take Afghanistan and we will probably go into Iraq, whether you agree or not. But we I don't know. And I said, I don't know 
whether we can uh, stabilize it, but we can take out that government in a matter of weeks. I said that, and it's on the cover of one of the, of the autumn of war. I think I said that quote. But anyway, the point I'm making is they that book TV went viral, and the next thing I knew, it was a bestseller book. It's, it, it sold a quarter million copies. So when I got to the Naval Academy. Uh, it was a controversial book because a lot of academics didn't believe that there was any singularity or exceptionalism mm -hmm. to what the Western military tradition. So if I said that what won at Marathon or Plataea or Salamis or gave Romans an advantage, it couldn't be explained by population or territory or allowed Byzantium to stand. I wasn't saying they won in all cases, but I just said this paradigm of Western civilization, consensual government, free markets, technology, rationalism, separation between religion often or more separation and individuals. And all of those explain why, despite catastrophic defeats and being outnumbered and splits between orthodoxy and Catholicism and uh, Protestantism, they had advantages. And those advantages are, are there in the real world that a Chinese military officer looks like us. We don't look like him. In other words, he doesn't use traditional Chinese garb or he doesn't have traditional Chinese right. weaponry. And I said, when a we don't have a monopoly on genius, when there's an invention that the Chinese develop like gunpowder, we do know how to steal things better than people and improve them and subject them to market profiteering. So I was I went through all of the of that and it was very popular. But I got and John Keegan wrote a nice introduction. I had a lot of very positive reviews, but the academic world went crazy about that book. They got they said it was a triumphalism, Western chauvinism. I was out of my field. I was on the board of Orion a Journal and they commissioned a guy who hated my guts because I had said, you know, that you can that bombing um on the March 11th fire rage of Japan, it was regrettable, but we did right. give leaflets and J Japan deliberately put decentralized their aircraft and arms munition industries in civilian right. sectors so that people were, you know, assembling a propeller blade on their kitchen table and then, you know, deliberately so we wouldn't do it. So you could argue that LeMay was uncouth, but there was an argument to be made given that 20,000 people a day were being killed in the Pacific and Asia by the Japanese imperial military. But he got, yeah. he this person was very close to Japan, got very angry and asked if he could review it and just, I thought it was one of the most dishonest reviews. You can go look at yeah. it. But anyway, who, who interviewed you on on who did the book? I did it myself. I just did a book sign. It was just a routine non-event. Non okay. I went to a Fresno bookstore. There yeah. was 50 people and, and then they put it on. And I kind of said the questions were kind of, well, what do we do and how do they do this? I said, don't worry. It was a lapse. That's not typical. Americans right. and the Westerners know how to respond. We're going to respond. We're going to find out who did it. We're going to go back and bomb them. He will not be in Afghanistan. I don't know if he'll be dead or not, but he will not be there a month from now. Bin Laden. Everybody thought he was a Superman. Right. And then I right. said, Saddam will not be there very long. And I, you know, I, I said, it's going to be messy. I don't know if we should nation, but they're not going to be there. And I uh, people interpret that and it, it went viral. And yeah. that that alone, not the book, sold the book. But mm -hmm. 
Okay. What I'm getting at was uh, I was when I was at the Naval Academy, that book was very controversial and people that were on the faculty didn't like it. And so everything was kind of a perfect storm. And I was very I liked the Academy. I thought I felt very honored. They'd asked me. There was a professor there, Richard Abel, very kind to me. Miles, of course, there were a lot of nice people, but the atmosphere, the students were wonderful, but the atmosphere of the administration and the faculty, I was not prepared for. I had uh, thought that it was going to be a very Air Force-like or West like West Point-like environment, and it was more like a Mark Milley, Lloyd Austin wow. um, campus. And I think, and until recently, most Americans were probably under the same illusion or perception that this was, uh, you know, a place for. And, and the America. reason it is is it, the reason is is that it is adapt it is adopted from the blueprint of an American university, yeah. and and West Point. And uh, the Air Force Academy function on different premises. Victor, I have a related question or two to the the Naval Academy. And let's because these are programs going to be a little shorter. So let me let me get to that uh, right after this uh, important message. Angie's list is now Angie, the nation's largest home services marketplace. And Angie is here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled professionals to get the job done well. My son needed a major yard cleanup at his new home. We went straight to the Angie website and found a bunch of local, reliable, and affordable pros to handle the job, and one did pronto. Angie can help you find the best price for your project. Angie lets you request and compare quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. Angie has cost guides that tell you what others have paid for similar projects, both nationally and in your area. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I com or download the app today. The app and website are free to use. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. This is the first of four special episodes we're recording while Victor will will be away. And I I want to quickly remind our listeners, especially our new listeners, to visit Victor's website, VictorHansonSon.com, the Blade of Perseus. Sign up, subscribe, because when you subscribe, it's $5 to get in the door, $50 for the year. You will be able to access and read the voluminous ultra articles that Victor uh, writes regularly uh, for that website. You can't read them anywhere else. And if you if you want to read everything Victor writes, well, you're not able to unless you subscribe. Uh, also, you'll find links there at the Blade of Perseus 2, Victor's other appearance, appearances on the radio programs, other podcasts. So uh, do check that out and check out my 
uh, week, free weekly email newsletter, Civil Thoughts, that I write for the Center for Civil Society at American Philanthropic. Go to civilthoughts.com and please do sign up. So, Victor, staying a little on things naval, I guess this is a uh, this might be the final question. We may not be able to get to three questions today, but um, there is. Okay, we have four academies, if you want to include the Coast Guard Academy. We have a Naval War College, do we not? We have an Army War College. We have a Naval Institute. So I'm just, there's two parts. Have you taught or lectured at any of these other schools and or institutes? And as regards the Naval Institute, which is the home of proceedings, I believe, the, the, the important maybe it was it's not anymore i'm not sure but uh proceedings have you had any relationships relationship with the naval institute and yes. proceedings yeah it, that the naval institute press is on the campus of annapolis and i they they during that period of 2002-3 the editor at the time asked me to make a summary of was of uh, carnage and culture so i did write an article about it for the proceedings and i think i went over there three or four times and uh, to consult about they wanted me as a referee so i was trying in my role as a schifrin professor i was trying to do things in i don't know university service as part of the job as being a professor so yes i did go over and consult and like the people very much and had they had a lot of great stories about tom clancy and the hunt for red october which was a naval institute press and i think they had the contract i think they you know he nobody would publish tom clancy believe right. it or not that great novel until the Naval Institute Press published it. And that did was you meet really... him while you were there? Or no, I didn't. Uh, I, I take that back. He did. I did meet him once. I, I remember it was in Washington D.C. and it was a naval. It wasn't the Naval Academy event. It was either a naval alumni event or something. But I did meet him. He had something wrong with his. I remember his eyes. Terrible eyesight. Yeah. Well, yeah. It was almost like he he couldn't. His eyes were squinting. He had eye eyelid problems. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't well. I remember that. Um, but I did like the Naval Institute Press, and they were telling me the story of Tom Clancy, how he submitted the manuscript. They didn't really read it at first. They saw it. They saw there was potential there. They gave him, I think, a four or five thousand, and they and and, and they got the paperback rights. And then Reagan, somebody put it on Reagan's desk, and Reagan loved it. He just stopped everything and read it. And then he went to a press conference and said, you got to read this book. Or It was either a press <laughs> conference or he, and it went yeah. viral. Right. And this little university press then was sold out. And more importantly, they thought they had the paperback rights. And then he broke the contract and sold it to a trade publisher. Right. And he made a fortune. The rest is history. So, yeah, I, I've been I went to Carlisle Barracks in Pennsylvania that year. And I have since I may be. I've spoken at the Army War College five or six times. I've spoken at Camp Lejeune. Um, I did a special three-day billet uh, for the Bush administration when I went down to Camp Pendleton. And there was a project uh, with um, the Department NEH to get returning veterans from Iraq to write their war memoirs. And so I would I went down there and, and I met with them and talked about how to write memoirs and stuff like that. 
I went. To, I like going to the Army War College. I did that a lot, maybe four or five times. I was the Nimitz visiting professor at UC Berkeley. That was a very different performance. Have I said to the audience, mm. which would you rather be, a visiting professor at the Naval Academy or a visiting prof Nimitz professor at Berkeley? And Berkeley, of course, was not. It was only, I think, two weeks. It wasn't long. But you had to give, I think, right. five. Like, which would most academics that were conservative prefer. They prefer to go to the Naval Academy. And lo and behold, I had exactly the opposite experience. I went to Berkeley. The people who ran the Nimitz program were wonderful. The students were ROTC and Stanford didn't have a program. So they were bringing in students from Stanford and a lot of the UC campuses. Berkeley had one and it was wonderful. I had a, I didn't know that I, <laughs> the only bad thing about it, I kept getting uh, I would give a lecture and run out and vomit. <laughs> and I thought it was nerves, but I never had that. And then what? as soon as I did, I left, I had to get on a plane and fly to Libya because this travel group had hired oh, me to speak uh -huh. on the, they hired right. me to speak on the mosaics at uh, Sabratha right. and right. left this magnet, which hadn't been open to the public. There'd only been 40 visas issued. And of course, I had a ruptured appendix. It was already leaking. I didn't know it. And I got right. on that plane, got to Libya, and it burst. And I almost died. But that's another story. But anyway, the point yes. was that it was wonderful being at uh, UC Berkeley and the Nimitz. I really enjoyed it. So I've done a lot. I, I said I was. I must have met with the Office of Net Assessment four or five times at the Hoover Institution. Until recently, I participated every year. We would bring out naval air force and army officers from all over the world and then they would visit particular programs and one of which was the hoover so i'd always give lectures three days in a row to those groups so i've had a long association with the military right. um, i used to we used to have we have a program called the security fellows and we bring a member from each branch as well as a diplomatic corps for their between that key period of lieutenant colonel to colonel they select about 2% of the lieutenant colonels they think are going to make colonel or will make it or have made it. And they have a choice of going to the Kennedy School of Government or Hoover. And a lot of them pick Hoover. And I was asked by our late uh, director to do something with them. So I came up with two things. One was we had a wonderful guy named Jack Littlefield and his brother. The Littlefields are just wonderful people. And they were... Uh, quite wealthy. Their father had been, a, I think, the chief um, stockholder, but they were philanthropists. And they, Jock Littlefield created the largest uh, tank museum west of the Mississippi. Hmm. And you, you should, in, in the hills of Woodside, believe it, this, this Tony uh, community right. <laughs> above 280. And so yeah. he would have me come out and we would discuss the fighting characteristics of a panther or he actually, right before he died, he was negotiating to get a tiger and what he really taught me was that the sherman tank had been under it was underestimated and he i talked to the mechanics and they showed me how long it take took to take an engine out of a t-34 or a panther or a mark far versus a sherman and the was result this a museum of, did they were they active did you actually ride in it in one yeah of i mean all, i mean yeah yeah well i was in iraq and i, I drove a t-72 Oh, so okay. I, I was at a firing range and this Iraqi guy said, 
well, why are you shooting an AK-47? Get in the tank. You can drive it. And then I went in. I thought, and you know what it was? It was just like my grandfather's old Caterpillar. He had yeah. 1947 cat with little uh, levers, you know, to control right. it rather than the steering wheel. So it was, I, you know, it was kind of like popping. The, it was kind of fun. But yeah. I would take the security fellows from the branches of the military, and we went out to the Littlefield Museum, and then Jacques gave a lecture, and then I would tour all the tanks. He had maybe 80, 90, 100 of them all over the world. World wow. War One, all the way. He had everything over there, and he and he had five or six full-time mechanics that were restoring them. And then the other aspect of it, every year I took them for a lunch with Tom Soul, and they loved it. Uh, oh, Tom, was, Tom, wow. Tom Tom was in his late 70s. He's yeah. 94. And he and I had a, I think I mentioned, had a ritual for 15 years that once, twice a month we met for lunch. Yeah. And nobody else, but I always tried to bring people because everybody yeah. wanted to meet Tom Soul. And yeah. I just, I ended up just worshiping Tom. I still do. And we yeah. communicate not as frequently, but as we did, but we were best friends. He didn't come into Hoover a lot because he was so busy writing. He wrote nonstop at home. But these four officers then would go to lunch with Tom, and he was just delightful. He was in the Marine Corps himself. Right, right. So it was very uh, – I've had a lot that's, of experience. That's terrific. Hey, Victor, we, we're going on uh, too long. Well, that's all right, but we have time for one more very short question okay. with a very short answer, and we'll get to that right after this final message. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. with the Victor Davis Hanson show. Victor, quick question and an on-the-spot reflection. Uh, as you met, you brought up the, this uh, C-SPAN Book TV interview that um, uh, made greatly impacted the uh, sales of a book. Was that, as you look back on your life, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, you are, we are all where we're at for who knows what reasons, but was that a kind of a, a seminal little unexpected event that put your life in a different tra trajectory or, or not really, did that matter? Did they, did the, well, it mattered the, uh, financially. I was, I had been insanely uh, farming full time when I got my PhD in 1980. And then I went as a part-time lecturer at Cal state Fresno, the nearest campus. And then I was there for 21 years, but I was still involved in farming. I was signing, co-signing these huge loans and farming was really bad, especially raisin and tree fruit. So I had nothing. And suddenly to have a book that sold and I had written 
you know, five or six books, but none of them had the success. I think if I was to spot, identify a seminal moment, it was this. I was an obscure professor at Cal State Fresno in my um, late 20s and early 30s. And I had this idea of writing about Greek warfare from the John Keegan point of view. But when I published my thesis, an Italian publisher, UC Press eventually did this paperback, but it was a University of Pisa. Who would ever read it? And so they said, yeah. beautifully produced. I mean, gosh, it was like a medieval manuscript. It was so the pages and it was just wonderful. Yeah. But I didn't have anybody to send it to. I mean, I wasn't a scholar anymore. I was just a farmer. So they, Emilio Gaba was a wonderful classicist, very famous Greek historian. So he wrote me a letter and said, we need to send this to somebody. We'll send it. You have three people. Who do you want? So I sent one to John Keegan. I didn't know who he was. I loved the face of battle. But imagine getting this weird Italian-produced book called Warfare <laughs> Warfare and Agriculture in Classical Greece. And he, he wrote back and said, this is the most fascinating thing I've ever read about agriculture and war. It's great. And he wrote it, you know, in longhand as he did with his fountain pen. And at the bottom, he said, P.S., if you ever write a book again, send it to me at this address. So I put that little thing in an envelope and I said, I'm going at that point. I wasn't going to write again. I was so sick of academia, but I had this idea and I had mentioned it to my thesis advisor. I said, I'd like to describe what battle was actually like for Greeks. How much of the armor weigh? Did they defecate? Did they urinate? Did they were they subject to panic? How much how do they kill people in battle? I don't want to talk about strategy and tactics, just the environment. And I did. It was called the Inf infantry battle in classical Greece. And that became the subtitle. And uh, the publisher, who's a wonderful, brilliant woman, Elizabeth Sifton and Alfred Knopf, which was very, you know, premier. So I had sent it everywhere and I was getting nowhere. And then I remember. I had that letter in my thing that was now yeah. four years old. Yeah. <laughs> so I wrote, dear John Keegan, this is Victor Davis Hanson. You do not remember who I was, but you said nice things about my thesis that was published. And you said, if I ever needed anything and I just forgot about it and he never wrote back for a month. And then all of a sudden I got a note and it was one sentence, Jack. And it said, the editor-in-chief of Alfred Knopp will be calling you. That was all. <laughs> and this woman called me and she said, John Keegan wants me to read a manuscript. And I don't know if I can promise you he hasn't read it, but he assures me it will be good. And I said, well, that's nice of him. Do you have and do you have a manuscript? And I said, yes. And so I sent it and she called back and said, well, we're not going to, Alfred Knopf's not going to publish a book by the name of Infantry Battle in Classical Greek, but you're talking about a whole mentality that became enshrined, you know, of decisive battle in the West. So if you let us allow us to call it the Western way of war and have an epilogue that puts it in a lot wider, we will publish it. And then she called back the next day and John Keegan's going to write the foreword. Oh, damn. And I yeah. thought, wow. And then yeah. it was just, I was nobody. And then all of a sudden, I get a check 
in the mail for $5,000 for advance. I mean, that's not anything today, but that time, yeah, yeah. I, I immediately took all the broken windows out of the farmhouse and put double pane windows for $4,888. <laughs> I still remember. Wow. Wow. And, and anyway, then... All of a sudden, people saw John Keegan forward. It, it was a history book alternate selection. It was book of the month prime selection. And that thing, at that point, I could get published by trade. I think it sold 50,000 copies in its initial runs. I still get, I still get, uh, I mean, I always Royalty think of all checks, the things. Yeah. yeah, I used to yeah. buy. I used to buy uh, titanium bats for my son on the high school and his friends on the baseball team. I bought my youngest daughter's braces with it for the real world. He checks every year. Yeah. So he, he, he was the one. And I got to know him uh, when I was in England. I visited him and he came to the States. And he was a wonderful guy. But he he really I owe most of my career to him. If he hadn't have done that, I don't think I would have ever been published. Well, that's a great story, Victor. Hey, that's um, all everything you've. You talked about today was terrific. I I uh, know it's not about we were, we're not asking about current issues, the issues of the day, but it's all very uh, fascinating. And I'm sure most of our listeners and more listeners will, will be rightly fascinated by what you discussed. So thanks, Victor, for that. Thanks, everyone, uh, for listening to this uh, special edition, special episode. And we will be back in a few days with yet another special episode of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Thank you and bye-bye. Thank you, everyone. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.